Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Science and religion are often paired as diametric opposites. However, the boundaries of these two fields were not always as clear as they seem to be today. In the Scientification of Religion, an historical study of discursive change, 1800-2000, Koko von Stukrad, professor of religious studies at the University of Groningen, demonstrates how the construction of what constitutes religion and science was a relational process that emerged with the competition between various systems of knowledge. In this book, von Stukrad traces the transformation and perpetuation of religious discourses as a result of their entanglement with secular academic discourses. In the first half of the book, he presents the discursive constructions of religion and science through the disciplines of astrology, astronomy, psychology, alchemy, chemistry, and scientific experimentation more generally. The second half of the book explores the power of academic legitimization of knowledge in emerging European modernities. Here, the discursive entanglements of professional and participant explanations of modern practices shaped and solidified those realities. Key figures in the history of the field of religious studies, such as Martin Buber, Gershom Schlom, Rudolf Otto, and Mircea Eliade, played instrumental roles in legitimizing the authority of mysticism, goddess worship, and shamanism. Ultimately, what we discover is that religion and science are not so much distinctive spheres, but elastic systems that arise within the particular circumstances of secular modernity. In our conversation, we discuss discursive approaches to the study of religion, the theosophical society, marginalized forms of knowledge, the occult sciences, Jewish mysticism, secularization, nature-focused spiritualities, experiential knowledge, pagan religious practices, and modern science. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Welcome, Koko van Stukrad. Thank you for joining me on New Books in Religion. I'm excited to talk to you about this great new book, The Scientification of Religion, an Historical Study of Discursive Change, 1800 
to 2000, which was published just recently with our friends at De Gruyter. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having this conversation. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, this really is a wonderful book, um, both in terms of the way you engage the reader as a writer. Uh, so thank you for, for making a very interesting read. Um, but also structurally and theoretically, I think you're doing a lot of things in the book that are going to be helpful for anyone uh, in the study of religion. So I'm excited to talk about it. But before we get into uh, the content of the book, it is our tradition here at New Books in Religion to find out a little bit about the author. So to begin, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the study of religion, perhaps um, mentors that might have been specifically uh, influential in your lives in terms of the, the various topics you study or the way you go about your work? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm basically an, uh, um, uh, an example of what some sociologists call the, the PK, the preacher's kid, <laughs> who, who got interested into, uh, in religion uh, on a biographical um, way. And uh, for me, this was pretty pretty early, and uh, because I was I was born in, in Ghana, where my father worked as a missionary uh, in the '60s. Hence, my my weird uh, first name, which is a Ghanaian name, um, representing the, the the god Kaku, who's also uh, ruling the Wednesday. So, a, a, a Ghanaian divinity that is part of my biography uh, ever since, and uh, I, I was interested in religion. So I was, or I was exposed to religion in many ways, also to colonialism and to other problem, more problematic issues of Christianity early on. And uh, I was interested in religion not from a theological point of view uh, or a Christian point of view, but from a cultural studies point of view early on. And I was, I was lucky enough to, by, by chance, to find out that there is this weird discipline called uh, religious studies, and when I worked in, in Bonn um, after, after finishing school uh, and, or high school, I uh, enrolled in comparative study of religion. And I did also uh, Jewish studies because there was a very famous uh, professor of uh, Jewish mysticism in Cologne, Johann Meyer, who I was intrigued by. And uh, I studied also philosophy, and I thought these three disciplines uh, combined would give me a very good understanding of, of the field. And this turned out to be the case. So uh, the, the themes that I was confronted with uh, during my studies uh, of uh, comparative religion are pretty much the same I'm, or overlapping with the themes I'm still working on. So Bonn was one of these places where uh, you could study magic and esotericism and new age and all these things already in the, in the 1980s, which is pretty, pretty early compared to other places. So I did my master's thesis on, on astrology in uh, the Bible and in, uh, in Qumran. And that also became part of my um, PhD later on, which uh, looked into um, astrology in Jewish and Christian contexts in late antiquity. Now, you've written a lot, and um, 
Could you talk a little bit about how this project began to emerge as a book and how it relates to some of your previous scholarship? Yeah. Well, what, what is, what is uh, interesting for me, looking back uh, at the various uh, projects that I've done uh, after my, my study, um, there's, there, there's an emerging pattern, if you want. Uh, also for me, an emerging pattern that was not clear in the, in the beginning already because I started as a, as a, as a historian of ancient, ancient religion. And then I did my, what in Germany is called the habilitation, the second book or the second PhD uh, on modern stuff, uh, on a modern theme, um, namely the uh, genealogy of what we call neo-shamanism. So totally different, uh, different topic, uh, if you want. And I only later found out that there is a common denominator, that, that there is a, a pattern that links these, these uh, quite distinct uh, topics. And today I would describe this as uh, a interest in uh, the plurality of knowledge systems in European and North American, uh, later on also, history of culture. Plurality of knowledge systems means that uh, I, I'm interested in um, religion or experiential knowledge that is often linked to religion, uh, but not necessarily so, but also in philosophy as a knowledge system, in science as a knowledge system. And I'm interested in how these um, various systems inter intersect and uh, influence one another. And this is how I came to uh, studying what usually is called uh, esotericism or sometimes Western esotericism, which is a little bit of a problematic term. But esotericism is an attempt to describe uh, what Kathy Albanese would call metaphysical religion, for instance, in, in particularly in North America, uh, or what is linked to um, um, New Age culture or shamanism or nature-based spiritualities. These are all uh, all ways of, <clears throat> or Gnosticism or Hermeticism. These are all um, examples of knowledge systems that are not easy uh, to put into, into clearly demarcated uh, patterns. So is astrology, for instance, is it uh, science? Well, it was science uh, before um, Europe uh, invented science in the 19th century, if you want. It was always linked as a knowledge system to astronomy, and only later these knowledge systems were separated. We can, I'm sure we will talk about that a little bit more later. Um, the same is true for um, Kabbalah, for instance. Is Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism a term that was coined also very, very recently? Is Kabbalah really a religion, or is it more a philosophy of nature, or is it a um, nature, uh, or is it a scientific uh, understanding, a rational scientific understanding of the uh, of the cosmos? So I'm interested in these these um, um, challenges of what we think a knowledge system would uh, would look like, and this is basically the the um, the pattern, if you want, that that um, um, that that drives my scholarly curiosity. 
And when it comes to this uh, this book in particular, it's a little bit a um, extension or or a, a carrying on of uh, uh, work I've done before, mainly in, in the medieval and early modern um, diversity of knowledge systems. And I was particularly interested in looking at how these uh, esoteric uh, or mystic or philosophical systems transformed under the influence of uh, secular frameworks or the, the imminent frame, yeah, if you want, uh, or secularism or secular outlooks, the development of uh, what we today regard as uh, science and, and uh, academic knowledge. And I, so the, there's a there's an understanding of a transformation of religion uh, since the the rise of uh, secularism in the 18th century, and I was interested in looking at what this rise of secularism actually did to religion and to these uh, other forms on the um, yeah on the. Or that, that bridge religion to other forms of forms of knowledge. Now, uh, the I guess the approach of the, your your book is you're using a, a discursive approach to the study of religion, which you you've written about um, elsewhere as well. Um, I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of background on what discourse analysis, and particularly you take a historical analysis of discourse uh, mm-hmm. type of approach. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how this might work, why you think this is valuable, um, and also if you have thoughts on why why this has played such a minor role in religious studies research, um, I'd be interested to hear your, your thoughts on that too. Yeah, that's actually also one reason why I thought it would be good to write this book because um, I've, I've written uh, quite a bit on discursive approaches to, to religion and repeatedly uh, colleagues say well how does it look in in practice how do you how how do you turn this kind of analytical framework into a concrete analysis of historical data and uh, and rightly so of course you have to demonstrate how this approach can be turned into practice and put into practice and actually help us understand cultural processes better and that that was also a challenge i had with uh with with my theoretical framework and i thought at some point well this is a good the 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 transformation of the religious um under the influence of the secular is something that lends itself quite naturally to a discursive uh, analysis and I try to prove that when I talk about discursive analyses, then uh, it's absolutely right that you that you insist on having more ha- having a, a a clearer understanding of what what you actually mean because discourse is such a huge topic and and concept that that, that is used in very diverse ways by uh, by various uh, various scholars and. I think it's very useful for uh, the study of religion for many reasons. One is uh, that uh, discourse and certainly the the tradition I'm more affiliated with, which is 
the, the Foucauldian um, understanding of discourse uh, uh, or the, the, the structuralist approach to discourse that Michel Foucault and others have developed that is closely linked to the tradition in sociology of knowledge uh, going back into the 1930s and 40s already, uh, which is uh, departing from the understanding that uh, our um, communication and our definitions and what we think uh, our knowledge or, or what we think is our valid knowledge is basically an attribution of meaning to things. And this attribution of meaning to things is uh, something that operates not only in, in language, but also in metaphors, also in institutions, also in, uh, in, uh, in, in like um, uh, infrastructures like uh, university programs or the Nobel Prize or uh, these, these institutionalized forms of, of knowledge. And the emergence of new institutionalized knowledge programs at the end of the 19th century, which is the, these are the new disciplines that uh, were institutionalized on university level around 1900, um, professionalized knowledge in anthropology, Indology, comparative religion, um, also classics, uh, but also the natural sciences, physics, uh, theoretical physics. These were all biology. These were all new institutionalized forms of knowledge that were set up on institutional, uh, on university level around 1900. That is just one example of how knowledge is um, transmitted and given in an institutional form. So if, if you want to uh, de define discourse, then it is not just a term on, uh, on which a discussion uh, develops, but uh, discourses are communicative practices um, that operate in, in societies and that uh, help organizing knowledge about something. So it's always a discourse on something that, that we are addressing in this, in this context. So, for instance, the discourse on nature or the discourse on religion or on law or on truth or on whatever, um, everything can be part of a discourse. And then the discourse on something is more than uh, just the term that is used, although analyses have to start with the term as well. So if there is no term about, for instance, the, I don't know, flying spaghetti monster, yeah. then there would never be a discourse on flying spaghetti monsters, just to, to use another example. Yeah. And for religious studies, this approach is quite uh, useful in my view because... Um, uh, we are working with so many different, or scholars are working with so many different definitions of religion and understandings of religion that uh, it is useful to take a step back and look at the processes of attributing meaning to religion and using these definitions of religion not as instruments of our analysis, but actually as our um, uh, as our objects 
of studies. So we are, uh, from this point of view, looking more into why and uh, why certain definitions of religion uh, emerge and are used and how they uh, are operative in cultural processes, how they lead to, for instance, um, laws about nature or infrastructures such as tax systems uh, that you have tax exemption for certain categories uh, of religion uh, or of certain institutionalized religion that you don't have tax exemption for, I don't know, um, some pagan groups, but you have these four other uh, more uh, accepted groups, for instance. Or, so these, these processes are basically the, the object of our analysis and the, the tools itself, uh, the tool itself is the discourse uh, on religion rather than the definition of, of religion. And I think this is, this is also a, a useful response to crit criticism uh, of uh, that, that the, the, the discipline of religious studies has um, uh, has received during the past uh, 50 years, for instance, that religion is a Western concept um, that is uh, exported to non-Western countries, so the whole post-colonial discussion can be um, can be taken into account when you not use religion as an as a generic concept of something that you study and something that is out there, but as something that is made in certain uh, constellations. Now, you've alluded to a lot of what's going on in the book here, um, but I think part of what will help listeners uh, really get an understanding is from the, the title itself, this idea of the scientification of religion. Can you talk a little bit about what what that means to you, how are you using that term, um, and what are some of the dynamics uh, throughout the various kind of case studies you look at that you see as parallels between them? Yeah. Um, scientification of religion uh, means that uh, – <clears throat> um, well, let me start uh, differently. Usually uh, it, is, it is assumed that the uh, – the, the, the rise of secularism and secular frameworks, or what what Max Weber uh, would call the, the disenchantment of, uh, of the world, uh, that started at, at, at the 18th uh, century, basically, um, that, um, that this process of secularization or rise of secular outlooks would... Uh, marginalize religious identities or the place of religion in modern Western societies. There are, of course, many different forms of um, the secularization theory, but it is um, a common denominator that most of these theories that were particularly prominent in the 1960s and 70s, uh, still in the 18th, 80s uh, of the 20th century, that they expect a uh, or have an, um, uh, have an equation of the more secular outlook you get, the less religious uh, identities you get, or the, the more modern a society is, the less religious it is. These quite simple <coughs> equations are part of uh, part of the uh, the, um, the the debate, and in my view, they are part of what I would describe as an 
um, attribution of meaning to something, to so the secular and to the religious, also to what is uh, understood as European or Western identities of, uh, of modern, uh, of modernity and secularism. So this is the, the framework in which my uh, argument operates, and I'm, I'm turning, turning the argument uh, upside down, basically. I'm saying uh, that um, these um, scientific or the, the emergence of modern science in a secular framework um, did not lead to a um, decline of religion, but actually stimulated new forms of religion. Or you could say secularism basically is, or the secular is religiously productive. And uh, the religiously productive form of secularism is what I call the secularization of, um, of religion. This is not to say that uh, all forms of religion just uh, got a new boost by, by secular frameworks, but particular those religions or religious traditions or cosmologies or uh, metaphysical um, concepts um, and traditions that were easily linked within within uh, academic or within with a scientific uh, framework. So it's not maybe true for some parts of more traditional institutionalized religions, particularly uh, Christianity, <clears throat> uh, but it is very, very much true for new, new emerging forms of religious identities that are not in conflict uh, with, um, with scientific understandings. And what I do then in the when, when I unpack the concept of um, of the scientification of religion, I have two trajectories represented also in the two parts uh, of the book. The one is, um, and the first part of the book looks at um, the, the uh, process of disjunction, I, uh, as I call it. So the the understanding that there is a intrinsic opposition between various forms of knowledge and then particularly uh, between astronomy and astrology, for instance, two disciplines that were two branches of one unified discipline until the 18th century, basically. And then it was differentiated in two branches and they, they fight each other, particularly the astronomer, Astronomers fight the astrologers, uh, maybe not so much the other way around, but there, there is a polarization going on in this secular um, outlook. The same is true if we look at magic and science, um, which is also which were two understandings or interpretations of what's going on uh, in nature until until the uh, 18th century, basically, and then these two disciplines were where although both are making rational claims about the, the, the cosmos, they are differentiated as two um, in, uh, incommensurable systems of, um, of knowledge. And there are other, other ways, uh, other examples as well. Uh, I have a chapter on alchemy, for instance, which is another uh, example of how these uh, 
previously united forms of knowledge in alchemy and chemistry were distinguished and became basically um, excluding, um, mutually excluding forms of knowledge. That is one one thing. Then the at the same time you see, and that is that is part of my analysis. Uh, at the same time you see that this differentiation didn't really work neatly. You see at the same time a, a re-entanglement of these um, of, of the concepts used, for instance, in, in astrology or in alchemy or in magic that pop up in scientific, um, um, in, in natural science, for instance, or in psychology or in other uh, more accepted forms of uh, knowledge that actually use the language or the, the, the discursive ingredients of astrology and reapply them in a secular context. That, for instance, the concept of the world soul, which is, which is not something that, that astronomers usually use, but in intellectual discourse of the beginning of the 20th century, in Carl Gustav Jung, for instance, in psychology, and also uh, Wolfgang Pauli, who, who was a friend or communication partner as a uh, as a as a quantum uh, or as a physicist, um, were in conversation about was the world soul as part of um, the new scientific uh, outlook. So there is an example of how terms that were used in a um, old contexts and that was now being marginalized officially still reappears in in discourses in more accepted forms of um, forms of knowledge. So it's a double double um, development. On the one hand, this polemical disjunction between those, and on the other hand, what I sometimes call a subcutaneous continuity, or what you could also call then or how I call it in the book, a re-entanglement of discursive ingredients that provide a new mixture. And this new mixture is uh, part of a new religious, or became part of a new religious identity in the, in the 20th century. Yeah. And, the, and the second part uh, of, the, of the book looks at academics as religious pioneers, which... Uh, uh, starts from the observation that many of these uh, new forms of religious life, if you want, uh, in the 20th century was inspired actually by um, academics. And this is true, for instance, for uh, uh, neo-shamanism. If you look at Castaneda, Michael Hahner, all these, all these um, uh, heroes, if you want, or, of um, contemporary shamanism in North America and, and Europe. All protagonists, leading figures in this field have a PhD in uh, anthropology or religious studies. Uh, another example is uh, the, the emergence of Wicca or the goddess movement, which is only which was only possible because uh, historians of religion and culture wrote um, historical narratives that uh, envisaged, uh, or th that described or uh, sometimes even fantasized a continuous 
uh, goddess devotion in European culture um, that was going on from late antiquity or even from the Greek uh, ancient world through the Middle Ages, through the witchcraft um, hunts uh, in the Middle Ages, and re-emerged now as the new goddess movement and, and Wicca. So this is another example of uh, how uh, I frame scientification of religion, namely as um, the writing of religious history by academics um, that um, produces a, a blueprint for religious identities and practice in the 20th century. So these are the two, two trajectories in which I trace the, the process of scientification of religion. Now, one of the uh, important factors that comes up again and again throughout uh, much of the book and, and seems like a particular point of these re-entanglements is the Theosophical Society. Um, they seem to be blending professional academic work with uh, more experiential amateur uh, interpretations, um, and they seem to be a real important um, location of this uh, furthering of these discourses and reinterpretations of the traditions that are being studied. Can, can you tell a little, uh, little bit about what the Theosophical Society was all about and the role they played in shaping and communicating these various discourses? Yes, um, you're absolutely right. The, the Theosophical Society plays an, a, a crucial role in, in the dynamics of these, um, these processes I'm describing. And I would, I would think if someone would uh, write the intellectual or cultural history of the 20th century, the Theosophical Society and its, its influence is broader than just the society, uh, will have to play a central role in what's going on here. And the society itself was, um, was founded in 1875, um, with Helena Blavatsky being uh, one of the, the most important persons uh, uh, in, that, in that movement, also the one who wrote the, the almost canonical uh, works of the Theosophical Society. And what, what you see there is that it, um, it brings together various influences uh, and recreates or, uh, or restructures them in a very productive way. One influence is basically the newly established academic knowledge of the time. So Blavatsky and other leading theosophists had uh, com communication uh, road letters to uh, Friedrich Max Müller and other Indologists, for instance, debating Sanskrit terms or whatever. Or if you look into um, the, the writings of Blavatsky, uh, uh, The Secret Doctrine, for instance, or Isis Unveiled, the two really canonical works she, she produced, uh, to put it that way. Um, they are full of... Full of um, um, academic references and footnotes, so they, they they copy a kind of genre of of academic writing, and they make academic claims, even if uh, they are controversial or not really studied enough. But still, there is some kind of kind of um, um, 
academic claim that is made here. And then there is the, the influence of the esoteric tradition uh, represented by um, occult movements in the 19th century that are also on the fringes of science and, uh, and religion. We should not forget that, that uh, romantic uh, science was very close to to um, understandings of the cosmos that, that we would today describe as esoteric or parapsychological uh, or, or so. Um, for instance, that there is a kind of um, energy moving through the whole cosmos that makes certain parapsychological phenomena possible. For instance, this could be ether or this could be somewhat in the new age context is called chi or whatever. So these are, these were theories of uh, the 19th century that are not easy to classify as either religious or scientific or esoteric. So the, the, uh, the Theosophical Society uh, used or picked up this discourse uh, that was going on in, in um, uh, religious studies, <clears throat> but also in, uh, in physics uh, and uh, the newly established natural sciences. And they linked it to uh, this esoteric tradition that also thought about uh, um, a ultimate core of wisdom that unites uh, all historical religions and that, that there was a kind of um, salvation history of world teachers uh, that uh, that come up to educate uh, humanity and to foster the development of um, of the, the, the human species into a golden age or a new age. So what we see in the 20th century then, in the, in the various waves of what, what we call new age, uh, with, with a combination of the, new age, the, the proper new age movement in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, but when you look at the American context, it was much older. It was in the 20s and 30s. And the same is true also for, for Europe. If you see this, then, um, then the Theosophical Society played a major, major role in breaking down these, these boundaries and producing something, something new. Now, in these debates um, and the kind of division that's being made between uh, things like astrology or alchemy from what we might think of hard sciences now, um, this idea of the occult uh, becomes a prominent discursive marker. Uh, can you talk about the kind of discursive work that's being done through the use of this term? Sure. Um, the occult, also sometimes um, called the occult sciences, uh, where, where you have the, these two concepts in, in one expression already. Uh, occult basically only means that it is it, it is a power in nature that is hidden, and uh, that is basically what occultism is interested in. And then you see already that that uh, the 19th century and still today, the 20, 21st century is operating with powers in nature that we don't see, but they are still there, or they, we, we assume they are there because we can measure their, their impact somehow. And there was, there was a big thing in the 19th century already uh, with radioactivity, for instance, as a, as a new 
uh, example of an occult power, very powerful thing, but you, you, it, it, it's hard to see, see it, or it's hard to measure or to, to understand how it works in physical reality. Even, even uh, electricity or magnetism, as another example, you only see the effect of it, but you don't see the power itself. So, and 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 scientists theorize about how how is this power transmitted from A to B, and and then later on in the beginning of the 20th century, you, you have uh, quantum physics where. Where this whole concept of causal, um, um, uh, of, of, of a causal, not causal, of causal uh, relationships is undermined, and things that happen at place A happen at the same time without delay, millions of light years away at place B. So these these are totally counterintuitive understandings of uh, of the cosmos. Uh, that had philosophical implications and that had also um, conceptual implications that were hard to hard to to grasp. And in the in the 19th century, this was the this was the the the, 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 the context in which practitioners like Eliphas Levi, one of the fam- most famous occultists and magician uh, in France uh, in the 19th century, operated. And the same is. Uh, two for Franz Anton Mesmer, who wrote his uh, PhD dissertation on animal magnetism. Um, that is exactly this kind of working of this magnetic power on a psychic or psychological level. This was a PhD defended at a, at a public university. It's not something that was marginal or that was on the on the fringes of knowledge. This was part of. Um, of knowledge, even though it was extremely controversial, uh, but it was not something that was totally off the mark. It was uh, engaging certain uh, fundamental questions of the 19th century. And if we look at the, the the emergence of psychology as an academic discipline at the at the end of the 19th century, if you look at Leipzig University, but also at the work of um, um, Freud and Adler and others, they they were very interested in these uh, psychic um, phenomena. They experimented with these psychics, with the mediumism, with psychic powers, and tried to measure measure it and conceptualize it. So, without the the occultist influences, we would not have seen the um, the emergence of a academic. Psychology, I would, I would say, and I'm not the only one who says that there are historians of psychology who claim this was much better knowledge of the field than I do. But this is this is an example of how occultism actually had a cultural um, played played a bridge function between different um, discourses and provided again blueprints for understanding the workings of this the the psyche and of um, powers in nature that could bring us to a holistic understanding of science. Now, throughout the back book, there's several um, large figures in the the way we narrate the history of the field of religious studies. That <clears throat> even even listeners that are just uh, 
a little bit knowledgeable of the field will probably be familiar with people like uh, Otto and uh, Jung, people like Eliade. Um, how how would you say your work and positioning them more embedded within the traditions they're actually studying um, will force us to rethink how we narrate the history of the field of religious studies? I think these uh, what, what I write about these um, important figures in the history of our discipline is not something that is only true for these historic uh, personalities, but it's also true for for us or for for our own generation of uh, scholars. At some point, they they will also become history of the of the field. And I'm interested in this when when Iliade, for instance, stopped being a academic authority and became a object of historical. Uh, uh, description of the field, for instance. Nobody uses his concepts of shamanism, for instance, anymore. Everyone criticizes it, but in, in, the, in, the, in his own days, this was the, the cutting-edge understanding in, in his field. So what, what, I, what I mean is that we as scholars are always also part of a discourse community of our generation. And we operate with concepts that are not just um, provided by us, but also taken over um, by us from a more broader uh, intellectual discourse. There's nothing, nothing revolutionary about that. But it means that the distinction between the academic as a scholar and the academic as an author um, being part of a discourse community with readers, with with uh, non-academics, with other interests, person, persons, uh, personal backgrounds, and so on, is something we should take more seriously in our scholarship. And we should be careful, for instance, to um, idealize the the distinction between insider and outsider view, um, or be, between emic and etic, or emic and etic uh, approaches to, to religion. I think these examples make clear that we are both of that at the same time, at the and the insider and outsider perspective in, uh, informs um, each each other in a in a creative way. And for instance, when you when you take another um, um, uh, important scholar, uh, Gershom Scholem, um, who is uh, the, the founder, if you want, of the, the field of uh, Jewish mysticism. If you look into his uh, biography and his scholarly and intellectual network at the beginning of the 20th century as a Jewish-German intellectual who was totally disappointed and frustrated uh, when it came to the uh, so-called emancipation of the Jews uh, or the, the, um, uh, the acceptance of uh, Jewish history in uh, European culture and so on, then, then you see that he came to coin the term Jewish mysticism as a response to what he experienced as the failed project of European modernity. And he and his friends like uh, uh, Martin Buber and also uh, others 
um, uh, including Franz Kafka or, or literary authors uh, of the time, idealized the non-European Jewish tradition, the shtetl Jew uh, or the, the Eastern European tradition as the ecstatic counterbalance against the rational European uh, understanding. And they, they, they put the, the core of what they understood as Judaism into this mystical ecstatic traditions of uh, Kabbalistic uh, um, uh, Judaism. So this is not something that is easily, uh, well, easily to be traced from historical developments. This is only understandable if we take into account their intellectual situation at the time that led them to come up with um, in a, a type of religion that uh, basically served their own their own interests that is an example of how uh, insider and outsider perspectives don't really don't really work in in what, what's actually happening these people um, put something into academic theory that is um, closely related to their own um, cultural and uh, intellectual place. And later on, uh, the, the concept of Jewish mysticism um, gained its own or started its own career. And uh, this is in discourse theory called the reification of it. You know? So now we have, uh, now we have uh, study programs in, in uh, Jewish mysticism. We have uh, Chewell, um, Sholem had the first chair uh, of Jewish mysticism. And now there are uh, programs I'm also teaching in esotericism, Gnosticism, and mysticism master's programs. So this is a reification of concepts uh, that is not just uh, found or just not ca coming out of the minds of scholars, but are produced uh, by discourses uh, in a more general way. Now, you really <clears throat> cover a lot of ground in the book, and uh, we certainly <laughs> won't be able to cover most of it. So I'm wondering um, what you feel like you are hoping readers and at least here listeners will, will take away from what you're doing with the project. Um, is there anything that you'd like to communicate that we haven't really touched upon yet? Well, I, I think uh, what, what I found myself most facet, fascinating in, in writing this book, and it's, these are just examples of, of, of a huge field of possible themes, but what I find most uh, inspiring in it is, um, is this experience of, of what, what uh, Michel Foucault calls the grouping and and uh, restructuring of groupings of things, which means that uh, what we what we think we know about uh, secular, the place of religion in secular contexts is maybe something that we shouldn't uh, shouldn't take for granted. And if we unpack the the ingredients of what this secularism actually is talking about, um, then we then we see religion and at quite unexpected uh, places re-emerging or being there, having been there all the time, only not being in the focus of uh, the, the 
the scholars of religion. So being creative about the ingredients of what a discourse on religion means is something that, that can be very, uh, very interesting, interesting to study. I also think uh, that it is important to, um, to take into account that we as scholars are part of, uh, or that we as scholars are part of a movement that attributes meaning to things and tries to make sense of the time we are uh, finding ourselves in. And uh, we are just coming up with ideas about um, uh, what what is the, the characteristic of our time and how history has led in a logical way to where we are today. But we can also come up with a different genealogy of uh, what we think modernity is. And in this, in this broader way, I think uh, if people feel invited to explore this uh, further and to apply this to other, uh, other themes and concepts, context, then I would be very happy. Now, could you tell us a little bit about the types of projects you're working on? I know you have a, a couple of publications that are uh, forthcoming, and what, what kind of things are you working on now? Yeah, I'm, uh, concretely, I'm working on the finalization of two, two publications I'm doing with Brill. The one is something I've I've been working on for more than eight years. I think it's a, I'm glad when, when that is done, that is the vocabulary for the study of religion. I'm co-editing with, uh, with Rob Siegel and that will be a uh, three volume um, publication similar to uh, critical terms in this, for the study of religion, but now with uh, uh, 480 uh, entries or something like that also as a online available um, product that can be updated on a regu- regular basis so I'm, I'm quite excited about about that uh, publication and uh, next month there will go to print a edited volume that I'm um, um, publishing with my colleague from Nijmegen University uh, Franz Weissen on uh, Theory and Practice in the Discursive Study of Religion, and the main title is Making Religion. So it's a little bit um, in the a little bit a continuation of this uh, of the Scientification of Religion book, but in this way a more theoretical, um, um, uh, theoretically oriented publication with lots of really interesting interesting chapters by leading scholars in the field. So I'm also very much looking forward to the publication of that volume. Well, Coco, thank you so much for your time and telling us about your wonderful book and good luck on the rest of your, your work. Thank you very much for the opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with Coco von Stuckrad about his great new book, the Scientification of Religion, an Historical Study of Discursive Change, 1800-2000, to 2000, published with de Gruyter in 2014. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. 
No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.